Kia ora, I'm Erin Keem and you're listening to Conversations About Closets with my closest thousand friends. I started this project to get me through a gloomy Seattle winter, which was hitting me hard. The thing is, I love women. Why not showcase them? Why not call women I've never met, have our first conversation, record it and turn it into a podcast? So that's what I did. I didn't edit, I still don't. Some days I'm on fire, some days not so much, and sometimes I even forgot to ask questions about closets. But all my guests are amazing. Listen up, get to know them, you'll be glad you did. If you want to be a guest on my show, go to erinkeem.com. I'd love to meet you. Aroha for listening, here's today's episode. Hey. Good morning, how are you? Wonderful. I'm so happy to talk to you, Molly Angel. I mean, that is one of the that's one of the best <laughs> last names ever to start the day off talking to an angel. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Erin. <laughs> and your company is an Angel Change Management. Yes. Which can be found at yeah, angelchangemanagement.com. Correct. Which of course is based on your last name, but I think it's a very fortuitous. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, it does get me a lot of attention, I have to say, although my friends say when I married into it, it didn't fit, but I've made it work. <laughs> I love that. Now, I have some questions for you, which may seem really basic to you, but bear with me. What is change management? Sure. So, you know, when um, companies want to invest in new technology and a new process to um, achieve better market or achieve better outcomes for their um, their company. They spend a lot of time, effort, and energy on achieving the technical and the business objectives for those new projects, but frequently they either don't put enough attention to or don't understand the impact of the human factors of change. Everyone um, has their own approach to how they perceive and uptake change. And in the science of change management, we really focus on how best to help people get from current state to future state with the new process of the new technology so that the company can achieve the stated return on investment that they're hoping by implementing their new process or technology. So change management is really about the science of the behavior of change. And I work a lot with companies to help them really establish the commitment that they need from their team members to make a, a change. And the ultimate goal of change management is adoption of new process and new technology. You, on your website, thank you. Thank you for explaining that so fully. I've never heard it uh, explained in that way before, and it was really helpful. On your website, you say resistance is natural. Yes, correct, Erin. Even when people want to make change because they recognize that the current way they're doing things is probably not optimal or is frustrating, Getting your sort of heart and your mind into a new way of doing things is very challenging for all of us. So that's why resistance is natural. Um, many times we think that it's everyone else who needs to make the change so that we can be happy 
or many times people know that they need to make a change because even they're frustrated by their current process, but the current process is so well known to them and they feel very competent and confident in it that sort of reaching out to that trapeze bar that's flying through the dark at you and realizing you have to let go of the one you're currently holding and be suspended in midair for those few seconds while you that other bar is coming at you, that's a very uncomfortable feeling. So the resistance is very natural. People, regardless of what kind of change it is, go through the five stages of the Kubler-Ross curve from frustration to optimization very naturally. And so understanding that that absolutely is going to be part and parcel of getting from current status to future status and helping people move through those stages as, as expeditiously and as um, effectively as possible is really the job of the change manager. Of course, I was distracted because I was picturing people in trapeze outfits. That was such a great analogy. And I'm picturing these incredible, colorful, you know, colorful trapeze outfits because, of course, my mind always goes in that direction. But I was also thinking of something I read the other day that in order to reach new lands, you must be willing to let go of, of seeing the shore for a very long time. So yes. Your, your analogy of trapeze, leaping off and trusting that you will be able to catch that bar. Uh, what a great way to explain it. W what is Kubler-Ross? Kubler-Ross, of course, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is very famous for her five stages of grief model. You know, the, the stages that everyone naturally go goes through with a grieving process. There is an adaptation, if you will, of the Kubler-Ross curve to really recognize the phases of change as well to get people kind of focused on understanding that there is going to be this trough of depression as, as something new comes into your environment and it's natural, it's normal. Again, even when people are willing to and, and recognize that they need to make a change, the making of the change itself just puts you through these stages, not unlike that original Kubler-Ross um, curve um, that was related to the process of grieving. So there's a change management Kubler-Ross curve as well that starts with frustration and goes through denial and acceptance all the way through the ultimate stage of optimization when the new change is really just part of the way that you do things because you fully adopted again the goal of change always is to adopt the change and that you're fully committed to figuring out how to make the change kind of your own rather than being um, imposed on you by someone else. There have been times when I could do with a change manager in my own life. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's it's um, not just for work because we experience change in every aspect of our lives. You know, just the, you know, the process of moving from one job to another, one city to another, um, one life stage to another. There's a lot of aspects of change in every one of those steps, as you suggest, Erin. You say that you are, you communicate with both line and leadership. I mm -hmm. don't know what you mean by line. So the fo folks at the front end of the change, the folks who are doing the work now that's been expected of them and was the standard practice are the folks at the front of the line. And they are now the ones who are being asked to amend their practice and their process. So it's up to leadership to really understand what it is they're asking of people on the line to change. In other words, they need to 
very much um, be aware of the impact of the change on their team so that they can not only communicate the business case for the change, which outlines, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this now? But it also recognizes, and we know that we'll have this specific impact on you. Here's why we're asking you to change. And here's what it is that will be required of you to make this change. So the people are given all the information they need to move through those stages again of the Kubler-Ross as effectively as possible. The, um, the in other words, the role and responsibility of leadership is not only to embrace the change for themselves, but to lead people through the stages of change by being very transparent about the change impact that it's going to have on them and not just rely on sort of the rah-rah marketing of, oh, this is great and we're all happy to do this and, you know, glad you're on board with this idea and good luck with it. It's, it really changes the, the nature of the conversation to, to recognize that that change is going to need some attention. It's going to need some communication. It's going to need some specific calling out so that people do have that support from leadership to know that, you know, my leaders understand what's being asked of me and they're going to give me the resources that I need to, to be, you know, effective in making this change. Because as I said a little bit earlier, you know, feeling incompetent about what you do is just about the worst place to leave anybody. Um, everybody can learn something new, but they want to know that they're effective and competent at what they're doing. So leaders have the responsibility for making sure that their line knows that that is going to be there for them through the process and the, of the transition. Knowing that you're competent at something is so essential to self-esteem correct uh, you yourself uh, uh, have experienced change i mean you've been an expat where were you an expat so i lived for many years in bogota colombia i uh moved there in the 80s which uh sort of astonishes even my children that you know mad respect for living in colombia during a really challenging time for that country but um i lived there for a number of years, learned to speak Spanish fluently because, um, as my um, husband said to me, the idea of me, of me being able to talk, um, you know, just a language between me and the ability to do that, no contest. So I, I learned Spanish and um, actually really loved living there, although it was a very challenging time to be there. I'm not going to lie. There were some really tough days and really tough situations that we that we went through and ultimately that led to our decision to move back to the United States. And I should mention that I did go to school in um, Luxembourg as an undergrad, which was probably one of the defining um, experiences of my life. It kind of got me used to the idea of living somewhere else and experiencing another country. And uh, so it kind of set me on the path for being open to the idea of living overseas. There's nothing like packing up your belongings and moving to another country to make you open to change. Absolutely, Erin. I, I would expect that you would have a lot of stories in that regard yourself. When I moved to Tokyo, it was uh, there was there was a cultural shift, but moving to America, not so much. But, mm. uh, but still, uh, I had to be willing to, to leave what I knew and leap to yeah. another shore. Yeah, I mean, there is there is an, an aspect of just 
standing out for the physical differences that you have with most of the people that you're surrounded by. Most of the folks in Columbia, of course, are a lot shorter than me, a lot less blonde than me. So just, you know, having that, like, you know, everybody recognizing very instantly that you are not from here. That's a, that's a pretty unique experience is what I learned. Yes. I blend in America, but in Tokyo, I, I did stand mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. So you've learned other languages, so yes. obviously Spanish, but you, yes. you said language is plural. Did you? Yeah. The other language that I can uh, kind of get along in is Irish because I've been studying it for many years. My heritage is, um, Irish. My uh, grandmother's family on my father's side was all from Ireland and she used to throw in an Irish phrase or two and it always intrigued me. So for the last seven years, (laughs) I've been studying Irish to just really connect with my roots. (laughs) That's fascinating. That's a language that not many people know. I can't. Um, have you been to Ireland? Have you been back? Are you planning any? Well, oh, right well, now, I was going to say, anywhere. you know, unfortunately, the coronavirus, you know, it, in addition to everything else that it's created, um, I was going to spend a month in Ireland last year at a language institute, really, you know, trying to move from being able to read Irish, which I can do fairly well to moving into that, you know, conversational level, because that's really, it's a tough language. I'm not going to lie. It's uh, much different in terms of its level of complexity from going to English to Irish, from English to Spanish. So much about Spanish is really very logical and the spelling of it. One of the things I love about Spanish is you see a word, you can say it because there's no unusual pronunciation of any vowel sounds, for example. Um, but Irish is not that that situation. It's got a lot of um, quirks to the uh, to the pronunciation. I mean, you know, you've seen all the videos of people trying to pronounce Irish names and so forth. I mean, that that'll give you a little bit of an insight into as a native English speaker, how challenging it is for me to really um, learn how to pronounce what I'm able to read. So that was a, that was a casualty of the coronavirus was my month in um, the uh, Irish Language Institute outside of Cork. So hopefully I'll be able to get there soon. Hopefully we'll be able to get anywhere soon, right? Mm, Well, vaccines uh, are in the pipeline. So I think we're all hopeful about that. Fingers crossed. Have you managed yeah. Have you managed to track down any relatives overnight? You know, it's really interesting because um, the family of my grandmother, some of them had immigrated to England. Some of them had remained in Ireland. But when I was a student in um, Luxembourg, I got to meet up with the, um, I, you know, the, the England-based um, branch of my grandmother's family. So that was really delightful. Um but haven't really maintained a lot of relationships with them since then. So that was really kind of on my list of things to do is to really kind of revive that because it's been several years now. So, you know, people are busy, people are doing their thing before, before the internet was, you know, part of our lives, keeping track of folks in other countries wasn't quite as easy, was it? No, it wasn't. I, I was very grateful for Facebook as I was moving around the world because it became my global directory. And it's still how I track down people mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Sure. Uh, so, and just speaking of Irish, this is completely off topic, but I just recently did that 23andMe. Oh, gosh, yeah, and the DNA. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, along with the Asian and the Spanish, there's definitely Irish in there. So oh, well, it's fascinating it's to hear about that. Probably the funniest result from a DNA test that I've heard of is my own father, whose mother it was, whose family came from Ireland. And he said, well, I got the most boring result that's ever been seen by 23andMe because he's like 98% Irish. He's like, well, there you go. <laughs> He's like, not much to say, not much to say about that. <laughs> I think 98% Irish is fascinating. Yeah, you mentioned undergrad. I, huh? I know you went to Xavier, yeah. which of course always makes me think of the X-Men. Is that Luxembourg <laughs> or is that somewhere No, else? Xavier was actually grad school. I got my MBA at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's a Jesuit university. It's one of the Jesuit um, schools in the United States. And But that's where I actually did my grad school. Most of my family went to Xavier at one point or time. My father and his brother both are graduates from Xavier. Both my brothers went to Xavier. My sister went there for part of her schooling a couple nieces who went to school there. So it's kind of like a, a family thing. Um, it's in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, after my undergrad, which was at Miami University, which is just right up the road in Ohio in a little town called Oxford, Ohio, I was back home and I did my MBA part-time as I was working. So went to Xavier. The Luxembourg experience was actually with a branch campus of Miami University that has, um, I just went to the 50th reunion of the program a couple years ago in 2018, I think it was. Um, it's a program that's been in place for quite a long time. And, uh, you know, it's the junior year abroad for, for students who go to Miami. So that's that's where I went to school in Europe. I saw you've been to Miami. You've moved around a bit. Yeah. Um, because... Were you, are you originally from Miami? I'm originally from Ohio. I'm born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I know it seems funny to have a Miami in Ohio, but it's um, the original Miami because the, uh, the Native American um, tribes that lived in that area were the Miami Indians. And actually the area of Ohio where the school is located is the Miami Valley. So although everybody associates Miami with Florida, those of us from Miami University call that the other Miami. <laughs> You're right. I was totally thinking Florida and I was trying to connect the two. Mm -hmm. But Raya, weren't you in Seattle and now you're in Portland? Yes, um, we moved out, my family and I moved out to the Northwest. We were just talking about this the other day. In 2001, I uh, was recruited to a small hospital, community hospital here in the Portland um, metro area. So we packed up and moved out here and um, loved it. Part of the the idea of moving out here was really precipitated by the fact that my sister and her family had been living on the West Coast for many years and they were sort of homesick for family. And so I had moved from Cincinnati to Nashville and she teasingly said, hey, if you're willing to leave Cincinnati, what about taking a look at the West Coast? So we just, you know, sort of set our our sites on living in the same town. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the day, Portland became the best option for us to do that. And the funny thing about it was that my mom and dad, who were both, you know, living in, you know, they were living in Cincinnati and my grandmother, who was still alive at the time, my dad's mom, the Irish connection, they were all living in Cincinnati. And as soon as my sister and I set up shop here in Portland and our families were living here, they said, hey, we're coming too. So my mom and dad and my grandmother moved out about a year after we did. 
and have been here ever since. My grandmother spent about the last 18 months, two years of her life here and just loved the Northwest because it rem it's very much like Ireland. It's kind of overcast and rainy and but very, very <laughs> green. <laughs> So yeah, we, uh, and then um, let's see, I was living in, I transferred to Seattle with a company and love living there. My kids love Seattle. My daughter's still there. Um, but then uh, the whole COVID thing, again, you know, COVID such an impact on our life. My mom and dad are here in Portland still. And although my sister and her family are here, as my parents have gotten a bit older, you know, there's just, you know, they, they like stay, they like living in their own home. And so I always knew I'd come back to Portland eventually to kind of help them, um, you know, make sure that they can stay in their own home. And COVID just kind of made that like much more real, right, Erin? So I came back to jump in the bubble with them. And um, so it's just been wonderful um, coming back to Portland and coming back to, you know, where my kids kind of grew up and, and being here. <laughs> we don't go much of anywhere because of COVID, but it's nice to be here anyway. And it's really wonderful to be here close with my mom and dad. I can completely and utterly relate to that. Mine are on the other side of the mm. world. But uh, but they are they're in New Zealand, so they're doing really well. They're I was going to say they're they're uh, they're in the best spot possible. <laughs> they do seem to have have nailed it uh, quite a bit. You this what you discussed about healthcare leads me to the fact that you're running a course mm -hmm. that yes. is actually for healthcare professionals. Yeah, sure. So I started off in um, clinical operations in healthcare. I had responsibility for like open heart surgery programs and ICUs, pharmacies, respiratory therapy for many years. And I segued from that into a more internal consulting role around project management and clinical quality and did that for many years. But the thing that I started to notice about projects was what I said at the beginning. Sometimes the technical and the business objectives of the projects would get a lot of attention. So, you know, you were on time and on budget always. But there'd be a lot of unhappy people or people who would transfer out of departments because they didn't like the new way of doing the work or they were, you know, unsure of what was expected of them. So after noticing that happening for a few years, I um, became interested in the idea of, well, how do you help the people make the change? And that's when I got my certification in change management. So the thing that I've learned since that point is that there is a somewhat natural affinity for change management and project management, but it's not very well established as the it is part of the curriculum of either um, lines of study. In other words, you know, getting certified in change management is fairly standalone proposition, as is getting certified in project management. So what my course is trying to help do is bridge that gap and create the, the intersect between project management and change management, specifically with the uh, um, lens of healthcare, because that's a pretty complex and dynamic environment with a lot of different, you know, regulatory aspects to it and, and um, you know, sort of differences in terms of incentives. Physicians are not always employed by hospitals and hospital systems have very different alignment to, you know, what their outcomes should be. So kind of 
you know, I really understand that environment and I've been successful in it. And I've been both a project manager and a change manager in healthcare. So I'm really just bringing those two disciplines together and making sense of it, especially for project managers who have projects that really do rely on um, having the or, you know, really their outcome relies on having the, the uptake with the people who are being asked to make a change that, again, that commitment and that adoption and just giving them a better sense of how you build the change management tool set into your project management process so that you can get that, um, that better outcome for your project. So that's really what my course is helping to do is bridge that, those two disciplines for the project managers who are already working in, in healthcare. To enroll for this, now the course is called Ch uh, Change Management Training for Project Managers in Correct. Healthcare. And if you go to angelchangemanagement.com, that's all one word. The, the next course coming up is March 23rd, 25th. So hopefully people will hear this in time. But I'm sure there will be another role yes, of the course. Yes, absolutely. So, 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 so do contact Molly mm -hmm. about this. Speaking of your work with change principles, I'm quoting here, you will help people, you help people liberate from change mm -hmm. resistance. And one way you do that is you have yes, a podcast. Yes, I do. You have the Change Manifesto I podcast. Do. Tell me all about that. So that, that. really is complementary to the both the consulting work and the coursework that I do, which is to help people understand what the fundamental concepts are behind change management. You know, sort of to your point earlier, we all experience change even in our own lives. So understanding what the somewhat more formalized um uh, concepts are around helping people change and some of the tools that you can use to really engage people in change. Um, as what I talk about in my podcast, I did do a little bit of a switch um, through the um, pandemic to start to address sort of historical events and models of change that hopefully as a society we can learn from and at least get a sort of a you know, like a fix on in terms of like, what does, what did that past change mean? And what kind of lessons can we pull forward? So I used uh, three of my podcasts to talk about the type of change that we've undergone as society in the past and how we arrived at a good place. Um, Seatbelts was one of them, you know, the, the idea. I saw that. Mm -hmm. There was seatbelts, ATM, and yes. the tuberculosis vaccine, which is particularly relevant. Sure. The, the, you know, the whole concept behind each one of them was what has happened in our past as a society that you know may give us a lesson of how can we be successful with all of the changes that are that we're facing right now. And the seatbelt was obviously about, you know, how do you mandate or legislate or, you know, create an environment where people will do the right thing, even if they, you know, don't have any immediate personal need to do it. So I talk a lot about, you know, what the history was and the, the science behind understanding that seatbelts would save us from um, certain, you know, injury and death and really how that all evolved and how people finally embraced it. Um, spoiler alert, it had to be legislated. <laughs> people didn't wake up one day and say, you know, that's a really good idea. That's going to save me from death and destruction. I'm just going to use my seatbelt. It was, it was a much different journey than that. So I, I walk people through what all that looked like. And then on ATMs, it was a serendipitous uptake of 
technology that people might have been afraid of, but there were, you know, some events that created the environment for people to understand really quickly how this could benefit them. So just outlining the fact that, you know, you can do all the planning in the world, but, you know, in some cases, what you have to do is anticipate what people's barriers and resistance are going to be. Like I talked about earlier, you can't just assume that people are going to hear about a good idea and say, yes, let's do that. It's really about building the case for the change, which ATMs did pretty su successfully and then benefited by some serendipitous events as well. And then finally, I talk about the tuberculosis vaccine, which is a big, long history. You know, the, the rates of tuberculosis and the, the devastation wreaked by tuberculosis since the dawn of history was really quite a uh, an eye-opener, even for me, who knew something about it, but, you know, just how much, um, as I say, death and destruction tuberculosis caused and how the uptake of the vaccine has really been very um, uneven across the world, even to this day. And partly because with tuberculosis, there's some underlying um, like public health things that can be done to establish an environment where you don't have tuberculosis flourishing. So just learning from how we have as a society adapted to different changes in our environment that were brought forward either by new technology or illness or, you know, new science to legislate or to, you know, develop ideas that would, you know, make life better for us. I just tried to talk about how we might think about these things and, you know, hopefully orient ourselves to more of an accepting mindset. You can find the Change Manifesto podcast on all platforms. Just off topic, kind of, but circling back to ATM, I was really surprised when I arrived in America to find that I was given a checkbook. I hadn't <laughs> used a checkbook in, in decades. We've had yeah. chips in New Zealand for a yeah. very long time. Uh, perhaps it's because we're so tiny, but things tend to get adopted there a lot faster. Yeah, so you know, there's... I was very baffled when yeah, somebody had there is a, a, you know, not an inconsiderate number of people in our, our country who are unbanked, people who don't have any relationship with banks at all. So it's a, it's a big country with a lot of variation. It is a big country. I'm going to segue to something completely different. Uh, for one thing, I just want to point out that Molly looks gorgeous <laughs> in the photo on her website with this beautiful blue top and gorgeous jewellery with a, a blue and pearls. But what I really wanted to talk to you about was you, i so jealous, you went to the Harry Potter Wizarding World pre-COVID. I think this is two Yes, I did. Somewhat reluctantly. I'm not going to lie, Erin. I got dragged there by my daughter who wanted to go. She and her best friend from childhood, they've known each other since they were four years old. Um, my daughter has just been a Harry Potter fan forever. Um, you know, kids, my children's age, Harry Potter was like a very big thing in their childhood. You know, she used to sit on our front steps and wait for her book that had been pre-ordered to be delivered every July. So, you know, Harry Potter is a real emotional touchstone for this generation. So anyway, she really wanted to go. And I thought, well, you know, what the heck? Um, you know, I, I read one of the books when she was too little to read it for herself. So I had a vague notion of what Harry Potter was all about and thought it was, you know, sure, why not? I had a lot more fun than I thought I would because it's really actually very well done. 
you know, it sort of hits all the high points. This it hits unique. all the touchstones of all of the elements of the book and the, you know, the, the wand shop and the, you know, the little magic tricks that are built into the buildings there and the rides, you know, kind of dovetail from different elements of the story. So it's very well done. I, I enjoyed myself far more than I thought I would. Well, because I usually ask at least one question about clothing, this probably isn't relevant, but I was going to ask what costume, who you would dress up as. If you, you know, I couldn't even begin to tell you. Um, I know that there's the four, is it four? You know, Slytherin, Hufflepuff and all that. Slytherin, yeah. Hufflepuff, yeah. Door, and I and have to confess, I would probably <laughs> choose which house I was based on which colors I liked more than anything. <laughs> I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go with the best house if they didn't have colors. <laughs> well, colors mm -hmm. are very important. I could send you to a sorting hat, <laughs> a website which would tell you which one you're in. But uh, but what? Tell me some. I yes. can tell you love blue. Is there any other colors? So I did with? the thing many many years ago. I, I have you know one sister and two sister in laws. So the four of us went to an event where we got told what our season was. That's that's how long ago this was. That was like mm, that was a huge thing. And it was that. so ironic because each one of us ended up being a different season, which we thought was a lot of fun. And that really was something that kind of confirmed for me what I had always known about myself, which is I really like the with those royal jewel tones and I really like the cooler colors, you know, the purples, blues, greens. Um, you know, I I just that's kind of like a a color palette that I always like, you know, I find myself leaning toward every once in a while, recognize, okay, now I've bought the fifth blue blouse that looks pretty much the same. <laughs> well, well, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, you're drawn to that color. Sometimes it's good to do a wardrobe inventory and realize just how, but it's a great way of doing a color palette, actually, when you look at your wardrobe, you, the colors, the, which colors stand out are, are are the ones that you definitely should be wearing. And it sounds like you've got a, a mm -hmm, cool mm -hmm. skin tone. Absolutely, to absolutely. Tone. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate finding out about change management. Uh, it was so informative. And I do recommend your podcast, Liberate Yourself from Change Resistance. Go to the, the Change Manifesto podcast and also go to Molly's site to find out more about her course Thank you so much, Molly. It was a pleasure. I look forward to one day. You're welcome, Erin. The same. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.